Finance and Leadership, FTI's Financial Services Podcast. FTI is a global advisory firm. We help organizations manage change, mitigate risk, and resolve disputes. I'm your host, Tilsia Toledo. I have over 25 years of experience in the financial services industry. This show is about the people I've met along the way and leading during uncertain times. You will hear from finance executives, law firm partners, dedicated government professionals, and many others. Today's guest is Matthew Bassans. Matt is the financial services regulatory and enforcement partner at Mayor Brown's Washington, D.C. office. He counsels U.S. and non-U.S. financial services firms on a variety of regulatory and compliance matters, transactions, and investigations. This episode was recorded in 2021, and you will hear us talk about the anticipated addition to the family. His son is now here. Also, in June 2022, Matt launched a podcast entitled Credibly Challenged. Matt, welcome to the show. Hi, Chelsea. It's good to be here. So Matt, prior to joining Mayor Brown, you worked at the SEC, CFTC, DOJ, and FDIC. And I realize that's a full alphabet suit for folks who are, may not be in DC, <laughs> but you know, you had various regulatory and investigative roles. Mm-hmm. Tell me about how did that prepare you for the work that you're doing right now? It's a great question, Chelsea. Thank you. I think my time at those agencies was rather brief. And I think really the takeaways that have guided me or helped me throughout my career, the First, I'll say, was understanding how the different time in an agency or the different position that it is in affects how they do business, how they analyze problems, how they address legal issues. And the example I give is that when I was at the SEC, the group I was in had been around for decades. The part of the Exchange Act they enforced had been around since, if not when the organization was created in the 30s shortly thereafter. And so it had a very set operating procedure. The standards it used had not changed in over 20 years. And that was in contrast to the CFTC, which at the time the the group I was in was standing up the swap dealer regulations, which were completely new after Dodd-Frank, whole cloth drafting of new regulations, and seeing how in some cases you need a steady hand at the wheel versus in other cases you really need to be innovating or building the plane as you're flying it and what those different perspectives required and being able to shift depending on the type of problem you're confronting or the type of issue you're confronting. That was something that I thought was very useful that I learned from those experiences and and transcended the specific legal questions that might have been presented. The second item I learned was more from the time at FDIC and DOJ was around, I'll say the investigative method of asking questions, seeking out information, and also being comfortable with some of the uncertainty. Particularly in law school, they give us these packets of information and say, write a brief from this. And there is enough information in the packet that if you do a good job, you'll be able to write a comprehensive brief. And that really isn't how the practice of law works. That one, we're always searching out information, even on transactional matters, asking, well, is there a security deed? Is there a credit deed for this type of deal? Are there side letters? Are there subscription agreements? Asking those questions, it's a transaction. There's nothing adversarial or contentious about it. People may not even think to pass along those documents. And so knowing how to ask for all of the information is helpful. Also learning about uncertainty and how to deal with uncertainty that it's rare, you'll have a full picture. And at some point you need to stop asking questions And you need to move on for the analysis. And is that drafting careful assumptions? Is that drafting conditional statements? Is that drafting multiple outcomes? 
we see that sometimes in drafting playbooks, that you can never draft all of the playbooks for a cybersecurity event of every possible outcome. But you can do decision trees, you can do the most likely scenarios, and that kind of conditional advice is something that I learned through the investigative method has served me well. Now, that sounds really interesting, especially the whole idea about dealing with the uncertainty and and the decision trees, because let's face it, a lot of times you have to make a choice or choices, recognizing that you may not have all of the information. Yeah, it's rare that you'll have all the information, even again, in a transactional matter where people want to run down all of the uncertainties, that there will always be things like changes in law that could occur. I think we're seeing that now with some things in the LIBOR transition, where again, these were deals that were done where at the time, all of the information indicated that LIBOR was a reliable index. Again, it's been around for decades. And now it's going back to these deals and saying, well, They never contemplated that we would need to transition to an entirely new regime. How do we do that in an elegant method that preserves the original intentions of the parties? And that is a great area where asking questions and thinking ahead can really help. Excellent. And at Mayor Brown, there are three big areas that you cover, regulatory compliance, transactional, and investigations. And we've talked a little bit about some of these areas, but is there a specific area that's taking up more of your time than others right now? I'd say that regulatory compliance work has been picking up particularly, and also some of the areas of regulatory compliance around, well, we did X project or Y project in response to the tailoring rule or in response to this authority we were granted, there was this, say under COVID, we were allowed to make the triple P loans. And now it's maturing the reg compliance piece to integrate those activities into an enterprise-wide program, or even just realizing that there may be gaps that now need to be remediated. Yeah, I would say that at FTI, we definitely have seen and we continue to expect a heightened regulatory environment. So that doesn't surprise me that you're seeing some of the same things. There are certainly areas, even in very mature organizations, where we're seeing opportunities to enhance regulatory compliance and and make it more efficient and more effective. And I know that you and I have spoken quite a bit about enterprise risk management. And at FTI, we maintain an ERM regulatory toolkit where we do track all these various different changes that are happening from a regulatory standpoint. Tell us, what are some of the things that you encounter when working with clients on their internal controls? You had shared the toolkit with me before, and it's very robust. It's something that I've seen as a trend probably most noticeably over the last five years as as an increasing trend, and it's something that's taking up an increasing part of my practice. I sometimes refer to them as regulatory inventories, but really the function of a financial institution that wants to understand the laws and regulations that apply to its business. And once upon a time, back when I started in my career, this was an annual exercise for many organizations. They would go out to the law firm and say, give me a memo on the major changes over the last year. And I remember drafting these for some clients. They'd be eight to 10 page memos of, well, here are the eight or nine points and and give a paragraph or two on each point that have changed of, well, there's this new capital regulation. There's this new issue with lending limits. And the organization would share that memo within its legal function. And that was considered sufficient to understand the changes in the laws and regulations. 
that no longer seems to be the case. I've seen many institutions standing up significantly more sophisticated law and regulation monitoring systems. For some, it is a monthly exercise of asking for what are the changes in X area of law or Y area of law. And also it's less of the, I'll say the, the soft, give me a summary of it, and more of the hard, distill it into the legal requirements. And I think that this is something I saw in, in your product, and it's something that we have worked on, is spreadsheets or charts and mapping all of the requirements that apply to an organization into charts with varying levels of granularity, but still making it mappable so that then each row of the chart can be assigned to a specific control. And then the organization can understand risk at a really granular level of here's the requirement creating the compliance risk, and here's the control we've implemented to mitigate the risk of non-compliance. And then we can test against all of the controls out there, and we, we can use an, an enterprise risk management system to aggregate our risk and measure it and you know rank order it. These are the activities that generate more risk. These are the activities that have a higher residual risk. And here's the activities that are more extensive from a compliance burden that you might say, well, this is an activity that has, we'll say, few legal requirements around it, but the only controls we can implement for it are these incredibly burdensome controls, and that can lead to a better understanding of the cost of that activity. Well, I mean, I think that one of the things that I'm always curious about naturally is from the perspective of the clients that you're dealing with on a regular basis is how detailed they are getting because the regulatory environment just keeps overlaying on top of whatever is already in place. And so it's not going to get simpler. It's going to get more complicated. So part of it is understanding what you have right now and then being very clear about what it is that you have right now and how you want to address it and then taking a risk-based approach into how you want to tackle the situation. Is that what you're seeing? Yes, I'm seeing that. And that's a really great point about the, the risk-based approach because one thing that particularly with other more junior lawyers is, or even people outside of the legal profession is there isn't a regulation to this. It's not like I can go open the CFR and point and say, here's where you're supposed to do a regulatory inventory. And here's what the regulators expect you to do. It's not written down. And so each institution is effectively doing it from its own risk-based approach, it, usually in consultation with the regulatory agencies, the supervisory expectations are an overlay to it. But at the initiation of the, we'll say the inventory project, or even as it changes over time, keeping a really good handle on what the scope is and what the level of granularity is, is I find is really essential that for some organizations, they're very focused on what are the hard legal requirements. I'll say the big legal requirements of, is it in a regulation? Is it in a law? Is it the type of thing that, that, that we could get sued over and lose in court? Those are the easy ones. And those, those you can put in a chart fairly readily because there are limited number of sources for that. Where it gets more complicated is when institutions start going down a level or two and will ask questions of, well, we have these self-regulatory organizations that we have to comply with their rule books. And they can fine us under these rule books. They might be on the smaller size of fines. They might happen relatively infrequently. But how do we incorporate these rule books? Because some of those rule books are hundreds of pages long. And you, again, if you're an active organization and say multiple payment networks or multiple commodities exchanges, you'll quickly have a multiplication of requirements. The other area is around the concept of guidance and 
And there was the statement from most of the regulators about how the rule on supervisory guidance, that guidance is not a legal requirement and it cannot be cited as a violation of law, that it's guidance and it, it only reflects interpretations of legal requirements, not creation of legal requirements. And that leads to an issue, I'd say, for clients that when we're doing these inventory projects, there will be various supervisory expectations that do not have, we'll say, the explicit force of law, but are effectively required. And a great example I'll, I like to give is around third-party risk management, that there are very few bright-line legal requirements where, again, you can flip open the CFR, you can flip open U.S. code and say, here's how you're supposed to manage third-party risk. But all of the regulators have issued extensive third-party risk management guidance. So say like the OCC's 2013-29 or, or the Federal Reserve's 2013 guidance or the FFIEC's handbooks on IT outsourcing. Extensive, very detailed guidance with lots of should statements that read like a requirement. And I think there's a strong supervisory expectation that organizations will, for the most part, follow those requirements but they're not legal requirements. And so having that conversation with the client of, well, what are you trying to get out of your inventory system? Are you trying to uh, make it for all of just the big L legal requirements? Are you trying to incorporate supervisory expectations? And even having questions like, what are your supervisory expectations? That for some institutions, it is those things like the bulletins or the FFIC handbooks. For others, it might even go deeper into some of the interpretive letters out there that are specific to organizations or for some of the policy statements that, that have been issued over the years. There are many that even say predate the internet, that there's the Fed statements on insider trading or the Fed statements on dividend practices that are out there as I would say pretty important supervisory guidance, but would struggle to find them on the Fed's website. And so talking with the client about what they're looking to get out of it, what their resources are for it, where they are in their maturation stage, are they going to start with the big L requirements and then flow down to some of the more important supervisory ones like third-party risk management, model risk management, and maybe at a later point, get to some of the more esoteric areas. Well, it's interesting that you bring up third-party risk management because it's a topic that I have written about. And, and I agree that there's so much guidance out there. And at the end of the day, people have to make sure that it works for their institution and understanding that you cannot pass off the risk. You know, even if you have a third-party vendor, the risk will still reside with you and your organization. So that's one of the key things there. I know that we've also talked about the convergence of the risk management risk stripes and how they're all coming together. And one of my big issues is always the need for the entire organization to agree on a common taxonomy, a common language that everybody across the various different areas fully understand so that when you're in a meeting and you mention something that is very clear, are there additional areas that you would identify as needing improvement? I think the, the risk stripes are a great area of conversation with clients because for so many years, risks were handled by, I'll say, subject matter experts who specialized in a particular area of the company. And even if there was an enterprise risk management program, its responsibility was making sure that the specialized area existed, that there wasn't an aggregation of risks. And so the, the areas I would tend to think of are, are things like financial crime that again, since before I started practicing law, organizations had to manage financial crime risk. They had to have a BSA compliance program. 
They had to be doing their OFAC screening. All of that has been around for a long time. And it was to mitigate financial crime risk. And it's very sophisticated, but it isn't always integrated with things like third-party risk management because financial crime risk is primarily oriented at customer-facing activities, whereas third-party risk management tends to be oriented more at things like procurement and vendors. And so it's two completely different areas of most organizations. And each, as you said, is, has a very sophisticated body of guidance around how do you do a good job at it. And so integrating those activities in a thoughtful way so that at the end of the day, they're both really operational risks in the risk taxonomy, they would tend to fall under the operational risk stripe and designing metrics around that that are fair to both types of activity and that are clear and understandable and show the magnitude of risk for both of those significant activities. That is, I think, a significant issue of guiding conversations. And it's not that we're taking something away from financial crime or that the third-party risk wasn't doing a good job. It's that really we want a more holistic understanding of the organization's risk. And the only way to get that holistic understanding is to measure it using the same tools for everything. And Matt, as you're guiding your clients through all of this, you're, you're naturally leading them through all these very interesting discussions. Tell us a little bit about your leadership style and how has it evolved over time as your work has also evolved over time as well? I think my leadership style, the area where it's evolved most, it started more internally working with more junior colleagues. And it does happen now with, to some extent, with clients. It's the old saying is all roads lead to Rome. I would modify it to many roads lead to Rome. There is more than one way to do something, and there's a range of conduct that is safe and sound, to use the regulator's parlance. And when I come into a problem or when I'm talking with a client about how they're doing things, to remember that there are many ways to solve the problem. And one thing that will irritate me when I come in and I see some off-the-shelf or some textbook-like solution that has been given to a client and it's, well, you should implement it this way. You, you need to throw out all of your existing systems and put in this framework, put in this model, whatever the problem is. And I'll be sitting, I'll be like, well, this model, yes, this new model, it works, it's good, it, has, it ticks all the boxes. But what they were doing before was pretty damn good. It would have passed muster. And was there a more efficient way from the organization's perspective that, again, maybe they used six risk stripes instead of eight risk stripes, or maybe they had operational risk as a single risk versus compliance and operational risk, or all the different ways they might divide it. And reasonable minds can differ on it, but I think we'd say that for the most part, those are all acceptable choices, particularly if they're documented and there's a rational reason to it. And so the leadership style is saying, this works, we've confirmed it meets the requirements, and we're going to go forward with it, even if we might have done it a different way, tailoring and adapting our advice for the client's position. Or again, if I receive something from a junior colleague that they drafted a memo and it addresses all the points, it is well-written, it is grammatically correct, it is clear, concise, but it uses slightly different language than I would use it. I need to spend the rates my law firm charges rewriting it. I need to say it is fit for purpose. It is sufficient. It addresses the client's goals and pass it on. And that's being an efficient counselor to the client. Excellent. Because I think at the end of the day, it's about, does it fit for the client? I tell people, look, the sample size that I'm focused on right now, is a sample size of one, <laughs> the client that's in front of me right now. Exactly. That's a really great perspective of who's your audience. It's not some professor comparing it to a model answer. It's the client who needs to use it to run their business. Excellent. 
So Matt, in this show, we always like to learn a little bit more about our guests. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always curious about what are you obsessed about right now? And it could be personal, it could be professional, any kind of realm. Thanks. What I'm really obsessed with is that my wife and I are expecting our first child. So I was an only child growing up and this is our first child. And so I am obsessed with learning all of the attributes of fatherhood that I can learn. What are the safe cribs out there? Getting outlet covers for everything and just all of the things of even diaper choices. We try to be environmentally conscious and there are now compostable diaper options and figuring out, well, how am I going to ship these diapers back now to be composted? It's like taking a, a legal approach to solving a problem of, okay, I have to I have to raise this child in a manner that respects the environment and will give them a good world to grow up in. But also how do I have this large mass of diapers now that will have to be shipped every month back to a composting facility. It's solving some problems there. Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, that's very exciting. So congrats. And it also brings to light, I know you were doing some construction and things like that in the past. So now this all comes together. So at least you have some of that out of the way. And I'm super, super excited for you, Matt. I also still have some obsessions. My, some of my professional obsessions are really thinking about how to grow risk management collaboration and relationship. And similar to some of the conversations we've had and the earlier points that I don't know everything, lawyers don't know everything. And institutions are looking to solve a problem that they are looking for the efficient way. And a lot of the time that is lawyers working with consultants, working with accountants, working with technical consultants, and really trying to understand the client's problem or the issue or what they're seeking to solve for and then solve it in an efficient manner. And that can be as simple as I sit down with a consultant on a compliance project and we'll talk through, well, what is the legal framework that applies to this client? Are they a broker dealer? Then we're talking mainly about SEC regulations. Are they a broker dealer that's owned by a bank holding company? And so then we're layering on the Fed's capital and things like that to the SEC's rules. Are they a savings bank? versus a national bank, that that's a point that as a lawyer, I can expound on at length and I can work with a consultant when they're going through, say, a list of laws and regulations. And we can talk about, well, why is it that there's a different rule that applies to a savings bank versus a national bank? And they can talk about, well, if we apply this rule, then we're going to need this type of controls. Whereas if this other rule, then we have a different set of controls and we can have those conversations. It's been a little while since I've done it, but one of the more, I'll say, mentally mentally enriching ways was a question that, that a consultant brought it to a client was around the broker-dealer activity. And the consultant was wondering what the FTC's UDAP authority was over broker-dealers. Because on the face of it, if you look at the FTC Act, it discusses how it applies to banks and it discusses how it applies to everyone else, but it really doesn't discuss how it applies to broker-dealers. Mm -hmm. And we had to go off and think on this for a while. And, and it turns out in something like the last 98 years, there has been arguably only one FTC action that in any way involved a broker dealer. I think it was maybe it involved an unregistered investment advisor. And really, there's a lightly spoken view that the SEC and FINRA's rules around honorable securities practices or fair and just practices, that that, that is read to be very similar to the FTC's UDAP authority. And so they really fill different places. And that's why the FTC has not brought anything against a broker dealer. And, and you wouldn't read FTC UDAP as being a relevant regulation for a broker. 
appeal. And like that was a, a thoughtful process of discussing how there's some cases from the 80s, there's different agency, like reviewing different agency actions and guiding the client to why they didn't need to build out this extensive UDAP specific set of controls because there were already controls there from, say, FINRA rules that covered the conduct side of things. No, good deal. Well, look, Matt, I always appreciate our conversations, especially when we're going down the rabbit hole about enterprise risk management. And I look forward to being able to collaborate with you and work with you on some other things. This has been a really great conversation, Tilsi. I really appreciate it. Always value your expertise and, and your broad view of the market on these types of risk management issues. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email financeandleadership at fticonsulting.com.